Good morning, everyone. Now for the main attraction, the Word of God. Of course, it's not me. But it's great to be here together and to open up the bread of life together. So we're in the series in Isaiah. We're going to turn today to chapter 22. There are pew Bibles in front of you, page 583 in the pew Bible. Can we stand together and read chapter 22 of the book of Isaiah? The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with a sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord Yahweh of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision. A battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, Lord Yahweh of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yahweh of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die says Lord Yahweh of hosts. Thus says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe 
and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day declares Yahweh of hosts. The peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. And it will be cut down and fall. And the load that was on it will be cut off. For Yahweh has spoken. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you open up this passage of scripture to every heart. That we might see wonderful things through your word. And that it might prosper in every heart. So, Lord, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Open our eyes that we might see the the depth of his love and the riches of his grace. Father, be exalted in our midst, we pray. Amen. It's like getting ready for a camping trip. I got my glasses, my book, and my Bible. What's the most beautiful city that you've ever visited or would like to visit? Friends who have been through Europe have told me it's Paris. The Eiffel Tower, the Gothic 12th century Notre Dame Cathedral, taking in the cafe culture. Others say it's London, Buckingham Palace, the Thames River, Big Ben. For me, It's Mississauga. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Barb and I look at it every day from her kitchen window, marveling at the many shapes it can find to squeeze a condominium tower into its mold. And seeing the sunset upon the high buildings in the evening. It's a city that's set on a hill, and it's not hidden. So the cities we think of going to in, uh, in Isaiah's day, the cities around Damascus and, uh, and Bir Elam and different cities, but in our day, Tokyo, Singapore, wherever it might be, cities with a maze of, of towers and hotels and an entertainment district, museums, the sounds and sights of culture. And on the hotel roofs and, and business towers, uh, gardens and swimming pools and restaurants to gaze out over the city and see the extent of man's accomplishments. The exhilarating view from the top, the city takes on a life of its own. And that's where we find ourselves in this oracle called an oracle to the Valley of Vision, zeroing in on the most famous of cities, Jerusalem. And we will see that it has taken on a life of its own and not in the way you might expect. So we're going to look at the first eight verses in part one of the sermon. Verses one to eight A. 
The valley of vision was in spiritual darkness. So that's a picture in the early verses of this chapter. Look at the visuals that, that Isaiah puts side to side. People have gone up to the housetops. There's shoutings. There's tumult. It's an exultant town. All of them have gone to the housetops. And then just right after that, put right side by side with that verse, and your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. Your leaders have fled without the bow. They were captured. So in Jerusalem, the barbecues were lit, the invites were out, and all of Jerusalem was in party mode. Get to the rooftops, everyone. Yet the leaders, when confronted by peril, were escaping out the back door. Little character, little wisdom, man-centered, entertainment-driven. What's going on, says the prophet? The city's in a dire situation, and the hearts of the people are full of revelry. So the foundation of this oracle has been laid. It concerns Jerusalem, which Isaiah said in verse 4, he identifies as the daughter of my people a phrase given to that city. Its constant pulse of activity reflected the darkness in their deluded hearts. Men living it up in the city while the city was ready to fall. Sin blinds in the valley of vision. Darkness was upon the heart. The city had taken on a life of its own and God was not invited to the party. Although they knew God, Paul would write, they did not acknowledge him as God, nor were thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in John 3, it says, men have loved darkness. And we see that now in Jerusalem, when the enemy is on the doorstep, is it time to plan a parade? That's what they were thinking about in Jerusalem. Exultant town, tumultuous town. Can we thread this back just for a second? If you turn back to chapter 1 of Isaiah. Just like to read a few verses. The first five chapters of Isaiah somewhat set the tone for the whole book. It's somewhat of, of a microcosm of the book. And let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 to 6a. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. So we are seeing the eyes darkened in the valley of vision, the whole body sick from head to toe. And if we turn the page to chapter 2, Going to read verse 3 first. Many people shall come and say, Come, let's go to the mountain of Yahweh, 
to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And then verse 7 and 8. But what did they find? They're looking to go to Mount Zion, but in the valley of vision, in the dark valley, their land is filled with silver and gold. Verse 7. There's no end to their treasures. Their land's filled with horses. No end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So this is not, as we go back to chapter 22, this is not a Mount Zion image, is it? But that of a valley. Not about a time of blessing, but a time of judgment. This is a vision about vision. In the valley of vision, a dark valley, a godless time in Israel. But unlike the city, Isaiah was seeing clearly. So we recall in chapter 6, he said, my eyes have seen the king. So now we see Isaiah's heart. In a time of universal mirth and festivity, he sits overwhelmed in deep, deep sorrow. Look in verse 4. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not later labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. He was mourning as one mourns for a beloved daughter. Some of us have experienced that type of grief, great grief. The loss of a beloved member of our family. And if, if you think of those bitter tears, do not comfort me for I'm weeping bitter tears, he said, that's how his heart was just torn, weeping for Jerusalem. I don't know if we've ever thought of Isaiah as the weeping prophet, like we do Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentations, and at the time of the destruction that was coming, or that was happening in Jerusalem. Can we turn to Luke 19 for a sec? Luke 19 Isaiah calls Jesus the man of sorrows in chapter 53 and acquainted with grief. I think in Isaiah the prophet, we're seeing the heart of Christ on display. This is the heart of God, God's prophet weeping because judgment is coming, destruction is coming. In verse 41 to 44 of Luke 19, when Jesus, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade all around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeping over the city. Because just like here in Isaiah's time, judgment was coming to Jerusalem. Looking towards a time when Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon would come in and tear down the temple. Tear down the walls and destroy 
the city. This is the heart of Christ for sinners. He weeps for us. He wants us to come to him. So around Jerusalem, the evidence was there. Isaiah foresaw that it would become a time of a day where the Lord had prepared, in verse 5, of a different kind of tumult and a trampling, and there would be confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down and a shouting and chariots in the, in the valleys and horsemen at the gates. The Lord has a day. In this period of Isaiah prophecy, the superpowers were on the move, wave upon wave of enemy advancement. Assyria, Babylon, the chess pieces were constantly moving. And there was only one who controlled the board, Yahweh of hosts. So here we see the prophet is foreseeing for, for this city, the tumult of revelry will be replaced by the tumult of war. The valleys filled with chariots. The Lord Yahweh of hosts has a day. And that leads us into part two of our passage. Verses 8b to 14. Jerusalem's sin was revealed in their self-reliance. It's crisis time. And Judah will answer. I've got this. I can look after this situation. So there was a crisis coming and this covering was exposed. It would, what people of Jerusalem were seeing, how did they respond in that day? Well, they thought, we'll get the weapons lined up. We'll check the wall of the city and, and look after the waters coming in for the lower pool. We need to get that reservoir filled up. We need to get the water supply looked after. And by the way, those who live in Stewart's Mill and Moore Park we're going to need your houses to fill the, fortify the wall. One commentator said, Jerusalem cannibalizing itself as they try to preserve everything they could do. As I said, to keep the party going, to get back to what really mattered in this city, to get back to what men loved. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, never have men been so busy to repair the breaches in their lives. Well, let's stop the rot and put in safeguards, huge dollars thrown at the problem. We can fix climate, racism, sexual dominance. But what needs repaired? Brothers and sisters, it's the heart. The heart of man that the scripture says is deceitful. So typically, in this man-centered rooftop environment, looking down at what man can do, they looked to the wall, but they did not look to the temple. They looked horizontally, but not vertically. When the temple was destroyed, as I mentioned, in 586 by the Babylonians, it was just another building. You go down the street, you go buy sports check, and you might stop in at McDonald's for a little bit, or or Target, or Walmart. Oh, by the way, look at that beautiful temple. Is that not the way in our cities right now, even in, let's say, in Toronto, empty churches that are turned into community centers or just a place to walk in and see what might have happened there a while ago? 
this temple had been long been forgotten by these people because they were internally focused and they'd forgotten to look to God. Their hearts are far from me, Isaiah would prophesy. Life in the big city has squeezed out God. The city has taken on a life of its own. And then we see the rebuke of this oracle to the Valley of Vision in verse 11b. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In the tumult of your life, brothers and sisters, where will you look? With trouble surrounding you on every side, to whom will you turn? A lost job, you're anxious about the future, there's been a health scare bringing worries and fears, questions that consume you right now about, about life, or a key life decision staring you in the face, new school in the fall, strife in our families. Where will we look? Will we look to the one who planned it? Who knows all about it? Who brings situations in our life that we might look to him? We've learned that there's no sense running to Egypt or Syria or Babylon, to our best friends, to a psychic, heading into pornography, a brothel, drugs. Maybe we'll just binge on Netflix binge on Netflix and tomorrow we die kind of a deal. Just be consumed with, with our own ways. It's not a way of escape, is it? It's a thickening of the prison wall. Are you going to just grin and bear it with that eat, drink, tomorrow we die philosophy? Or will you turn your eyes toward heaven to the God who has compassion that's a prophetic call in this valley of vision. Look at verse 12. In that day, the Lord Yahweh of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. He will not turn away from our tear-soaked eyes as we look heavenward. He does not tell us to speak eloquently, only that we just speak to him. Come and weeping and mourning and just to look to him. What a step of faith. Even the little faith you might be able to muster up if you can look to God. That's the cry of this passage. You did not look to him who planted, who knows it, who brought circumstances into your life so that you might actually see your weakness, see your, your need, and see that man has no answers. And look to the one who has the answers. He loves you. His heart is open wide for you. And he weeps if we resist his grace and his goodness. Beloved, pray. If you're not a child of God yet, this is an acceptable time to pray. The Puritans... I think just we're really tuned into this passage. Because what did Judah do? Jerusalem in verse 13, when they called to weep, behold, joy, gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, 
It's all about me, so let's do the most we can. Keep the party going, for tomorrow we die. But the Puritans have, have penned prayers that Jerusalem should have been praying. And they've given us a gift to the church. Arthur Bennett has put together a collection of Puritan prayers, and he's called it the Valley of Vision. So seeing their refusal in Jerusalem to turn to God and their complete self-reliance, they sought the Lord with all their heart, and especially in the valley. And I'd like us to, to, you can follow on the screen as I read to you just an opening prayer called the Valley of Vision. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights hemmed in by mountains of sin I behold thy glory let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up that to be low is to be high that the broken heart is the healed heart that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit that the repenting soul is the victorious soul that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find in thy light. Let me find thy light in my darkness. Thy life in my death thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. The Puritans are encouraging us today to pray, to look vertically, stop looking to our own strength and maybe the comfort of the majority and choose to go to the temple. In the Word of God, there's a special group of psalms that have to do with going towards Jerusalem and looking to the temple, the psalms of ascents. In, in Psalm 120 to 134, we have psalms of festival, going with the throng and the multitude, heading to Jerusalem, not seeing a, a darkness there of man-centered city, but going to Mount Zion, to the temple, to worship. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from who? The Lord, who has the blueprint, the eternal blueprint, doesn't he? Who made heaven and earth. Psalm 122, the next psalm, I was glad when they said, let us go. Where? To the house of the Lord. The very next one, Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes. In this valley of vision, the songs of ascent, ascent, look up, not this way, this way. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the eyes of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord until he has mercy upon us. And lastly, from the psalm of ascent, 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh, O Lord, hear my voice. What might the device of the enemy be? 
to keep you, keep you thinking that the rooftop is as high as you need to go. All of you to the rooftops. Look at what man can do. Are we really going to choose to live in that pattern of verse 13? Joy, gladness, tomorrow we die? Or would we consider verse 12? Coming to God in the Puritan pattern. The prayerful pattern of weeping, mourning, baldness, and wearing sackcloth. And I want you to notice in verse 14 the sad reality where there is no repentance, no desire to look to God, no eternal perspective, surely this iniquity the Lord revealed to the ears of Isaiah will not be atoned for until you die, says Lord Yahweh of hosts. So church, let's pray. Let's look up. It brings us to our last section in this passage. Verses 15 to 25, the demise of Shebna and the rise of Eliakim. These two men, named later on in Isaiah, but also in 2 Kings chapter 18, they were part of the leadership team under King Hezekiah. But Shebna here, we see, was his own master and used his authority to ensure his legacy. The Lord God questioned him. Just like he questioned the city. What are you doing, all of you going up to the rooftops? What are you doing, Shebna, making this elaborate tomb? What would the Lord ask us? I was thinking we're reading this question. To come down to an individual man, to Shebna, and say, this is a question the Lord is asking you. What have you to do here? Whatever you hear that you cut out from the tomb, hear a tomb for yourself, verse 16, a tomb on the height and a dwelling place for yourself in the rock. I can picture on the top of that tomb in remembrance of me, Shebna. But like the city, judgment is coming to Shebna. Self-exalting, self-reliant, self-consumed, self-deifying Shebna. Let's look at verse 17. Behold, Yahweh will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold of you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. He was put in God's centrifuge and released. I will send you to a foreign land, and that's a symbol of judgment, away from the temple, away from God. I'm going to send you to a foreign land. The Lord windmilled Shemda, Shebna to a far country with the tail of a meteor in the wake. He was so dizzy when he landed, he didn't know what country he was in. As the Lord whirled him round and around, cast out in shame, what does God say through the prophet Isaiah? My glory I will give to no other. There will be no lasting glory for Shebna, the one who brought shame to his master's house. But then we see something unique here. Just like Samuel told Saul, God's removing you as king. There's a better man coming. Isaiah spoke, the Lord spoke to Shebna 
there's a better man than you that I have chosen. In that day, verse 20, I will call Eliakim, my servant Eliakim, the son of Alkiah, I will clothe him with your robe. And down a piece, I will fasten him, in verse 23, like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So we see Eliakim, a, a, a good man, but just a man. Man at his best state is but a vapor, the psalmist would say. And here was Eliakim, fastened securely by God, but yet the peg gave way. It will be cut down and fall, in verse 25. And they were hanging on him the whole honor of his father's house. I don't know, there's one part in the Lord of the Rings movie where they're, they're in a tree and everything's on fire and one guy's fallen and Gandalf shoves him his, his staff and he grabs onto it and then another guy grabs onto that guy's ankles and, and another guy onto his ankles and they're all hanging off the one guy. And the whole honor of the father's house was hung on Eliakim. Right down to the 42nd cousin and the last great-grandnephew. They were all hanging on to Eliakim. And that peg gave way. But the problem wasn't Eliakim. But the men that would look to him to solve their problems. Men looking to men still. Not to God. That's where that peg give, gave way. Oh, if we just had the right leadership. If we had Eliakim. If we had new people running Hockey Canada. Or, or somebody new in the, in the corridors of power in Ontario. Or, or in, our, in Ottawa. Or maybe we'll even think of erasing the memory of leaders that were more like Shebna. Eliakim will fix things for us. Let's look to Eliakim. Let's hang our hopes on him. So the problem wasn't Eliakim. But in a man-centered environment, Eliakim will pull us through. But that peg gave way. But look at the language of this section Look at in verse 21. It says, He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Our hearts should flutter when we start to hear these words, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. What beautiful language, messianic language. Is this something, a clue again, something to stir in our hearts, to look up, to look at who might be coming? It's my servant Eliakim. And, and all through Isaiah, we start to see the, 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 this servant revealed. Behold my servant whom I've chosen. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and exalted. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This Eliakim, or this one to come, is called my servant that God has sent for us. And on his shoulder, the key to the house of David. The government shall be upon his shoulder. This, this one that's to come. 
Of its increase there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom from this time forth and forever. To think of what is put on, what Jesus will one day be, the government upon his shoulder. He shall open and none shall shut. Revelation 3, Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shut and no one will open. There's something very stirring in these words. And I'm closing with this. In Luke 9, Jesus set his face like a flint. His eyes were fixed towards Jerusalem. And he entered the valley of vision. Through the valley full of chariots. Horsemen at the gates, even within the gates. And he was delivered into the hands of sinful men, rooftop men, powerful men, wealthy men. All looked down on him and despised him. He had no form or majesty that anyone should look at him. We hid our faces. Yet this was the great unfolding plan of God. Planned long ago, Jesus slain from the foundation of the world. He entered the valley of men's rebellion, was nailed to a cross, fastened securely there, pierced and crushed in our place. We've gone astray. We've turned our own way. But Yahweh, our Lord, the Heavenly Father, laid on him the iniquity of us all. To the tree. It was our sin that held him there. The cross held him until he said, It is finished. Atonement has come because Jesus has died and he shed his blood. What it says about Eliakim, down to the, every offspring and issue, every cup and flagon, it says Jesus has bore all of our sin. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So, friend, will you look to him for forgiveness, for healing, for wisdom? From the valley of your need, will you lift up your eyes to God? Weep and pray. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the rebuke and the exhortation. I thank you for the worship songs we've sung and the time now at the table. Amen.